Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. Today's episode is a special one. I am speaking with my very own brother, Mr. Trevor Royce. Trevor is a medical doctor living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and specifically he is a radiation oncologist. And it was a really cool opportunity to get to talk with him in more depth, as you may imagine doctors are quite busy. And even finding time for family these days can be challenging, I think, for many people. We're all so busy. Much of our technological development seems to have reduced the amount of free time we have instead of giving us more. And I think that's something really worth thinking about. I mean, what's the point of all our so-called advancement if we end up more stressed out than we used to be? Trevor is speaking to me remotely from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I went to undergrad. And uh, I grew up in North Carolina with my family. My parents still live there. Trevor pursued math and science much more than I did and ended up going to medical school. And this particular podcast for me was just a really cool way to get to know him and talk with him in a different kind of format. So rather than talking about family or just hanging out, it provided a context for a more focused conversation about both his work and career in science and as a doctor, and also to get to hear his perspectives on things like our medical establishment, which, uh, frankly speaking, has a lot of issues. I mean, as we all know, our medical system is constantly being debated in politics, and there's just a lot of issues with it. And I got to learn a lot more about cancer and about his own speciality, which is radiation oncology, which means treating cancer with very highly concentrated and specified doses of radiation from uh, this like giant machine, almost like a scientific ray gun. And the subject of cancer is a sobering one. It is, you know, on the one hand, scary, and on the other hand, a fascinating phenomena to consider. And I was grateful for my brother for sharing more information about it and the current state of research and science around it. We did have some technical difficulties, unfortunately. So while the content of this conversation is really worthwhile, it is not the quality of audio that I would really like. And there was a slight delay, so when one of us would speak, it would take a few moments before that registered on the other end. And so it sounds a few times like we are talking over each other. That is because of these technical issues. But overall, a wonderful, heartwarming conversation. Really thankful to get to have my own brother on this podcast. Cool experience. And I hope you learn and enjoy from this as much as I did. And I now bring you Dr. Trevor Royce. And I'm here today with Trevor Royce, my brother. Trevor, thanks for being on the podcast with me. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. Yeah, and we're doing this remotely. You are in North Carolina at University, or what's the name of the hospital you're in right now? I'm at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and this technically is called UNC Hospitals. It's right. a network of hospitals throughout the state, but I'm at the sort of main campus here in Chapel Hill. Okay. It's a beautiful campus. I went to school there a long time ago. <laughs> it is. It is. How's the weather down there? <laughs> the weather's good. It's raining. 
The reason I uh, ask is because better. it is it is literally ten degrees outside here in Boulder, Colorado, right now. <laughs> I hear you guys are breaking records for snow. It's ridiculous. It's like a blizzard. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, it's good here. Chapel Hill is uh, sort of the quintessential college town. Um, right. It's you know medium sized town. It's not like some small New England town, but uh, it's a huge you know flagship university of the state and uh beyond the college and campus there's not much else right and there's a lot of exciting research happening there it's a big research university as well it is it is and the uh, medical center is one of the higher funded nih grant uh delivered funds uh institutions in the u.s and they're quite proud of that yeah and why don't you say what nih is the national institute for health something like that Yep, the National Institutes of Health, uh, which is basically our governmental funding body for medical research, the primary source of, uh, in the United States. And so a metric often for success of an academic medical institution is how many NIH dollars they're bringing in to support their research, which is, uh, in a sense, a, a surrogate for the quality and impactfulness of the research being done there. Hmm. That makes sense. Maybe um, we can get into some of the politics of that. I'm sure there's a lot there. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so you, why don't you say what kind of doctor you are? I uh, am an oncologist. Specifically, I give radiation for cancer. So technical term of that is called a radiation oncologist. So I treat cancer patients, but with radiation. Not to be confused with other types of oncologists, like a medical oncologist who might give uh, drugs or such as chemotherapy to treat mm-hmm. cancer, or a surgical oncologist who might do surgery to treat the cancer. I specifically give radiation. And those are sort of the three primary pillars of cancer care, surgical oncology, medical oncology, and radiation oncology. And I do the radiation part. Mm-hmm. Most people are familiar with the idea behind surgery or medical oncology. Radiation is a, um, maybe not as, as widely known, aside from cancer patients themselves. Yeah, I think a lot of people haven't heard radiation oncology. Is I mean, because chemotherapy is also radiation, isn't it? Or is that something different? Uh, generally, I think of it as uh, medical oncology, which is a doctor that specializes in cancer care, but then gives medications. And those medications can be many different types or forms. Be a pill. It could be a drug given through the, an IV, an intravenous line into the directly into the bloodstream. Hmm. Um, but even within that, it could be say chemotherapy, which is sort of a catch-all term for a medication that uh, treats cancer in a sort of non-specific way. Or it could be something like uh, a targeted therapy. So maybe a specific molecule that attacks a very specific part of a cancer cell. Oh, that's amazing how uh, specific speaking, it's getting. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has. Cancer care has changed tremendously over the last, I mean, certainly over the last 40 years, but uh, no question in the last 10, 20 years. And radiation also is no exception to that and has changed tremendously over the last two decades. Um, but the, a major difference between, say, chemotherapy or what a medical oncologist does and uh, radiation, which is what a radiation oncologist does, is that radiation, I think a, a good way to think about it is that it's a, a very focused and specific treatment delivered to a very specific part of the body. Mm. So I tend to specialize in prostate cancer. We're giving radiation specifically to the prostate. 
And so it's a local therapy. Uh, it's much like surgery where you go in and you cut out a tumor. Radiation, we're going in and we're aiming directly at where that tumor is. Right. Whereas a medical oncologist who gives a medication, you know, they take that and it goes throughout the body. And so it's uh, two sort of different approaches and they're all complementary to each other. And modern cancer care, when delivered in its best form, is multidisciplinary, meaning you're getting treatment from a surgeon, you're getting treatment from a radiation doctor and treatment from a medical oncologist as well. And they all work together in different ways to treat cancer mm. as best we can. Yeah, I like hearing that, the, the working together as a team with all these different approaches. It sounds like, and it sounds like when you're giving the radiation, it's, it's from a, some kind of giant machine and you're like pinpointing where it goes. Is that, do you want to talk yeah. about that a little bit? So cool the about it. Sure. <laughs> Definitely. So radiation, oh boy, I'm, we're going <laughs> to run out of this hour quickly because I could talk about this all day. So radiation uh, traditionally is delivered with a machine called a linear accelerator. And basically what that means is a long tube that takes some particle and accelerates it um, like an electron. And then that electron, without getting too deep into the physics of it, produces uh, packets of energy or photons. And so most radiation being delivered today is, is in the form of photons, and that's x-rays. It's the same thing, say, if you broke your arm and you went to get an x-ray in the emergency room, they're giving you an x-ray. Well, we're doing the same thing. It's just much higher powered and much more focused uh, x-rays. And yes, those, uh, with modern radiation therapy, we have accuracy on the order of, of millimeters and even less oh, with the radiation. Um, it should, I should mention that there are other ways to give radiation therapy. So photons is what is typically used, but there are also uh, things like protons. Uh, and protons um, you know, are large charged particles, and they have different sort of physical properties that we can take advantage of to treat cancer with. Another thing we can give is electrons, which also has its own set of physical properties that we can take advantage of to deliver radiation to tumors. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, there are other but, sort of, yeah, there's some other more rare things like ions, carbon ions, heavy ions, and things like that, but we don't see that so much in the U.S. Yeah. But by far and away, most of what we're doing is just simple x-rays, also called photons. Simple x-rays that are incredibly focused and specific. And it's just cool to hear about how it can target. It's on the level of photons. It's these like, I mean, it's such a tiny particle. It's, it really is bringing mm -hmm. physics, like very, you said a minute ago. Yes, and it's very high energy. And in fact, part of our boarding process, you know, all, the, all medical specialties have an, overs, an oversight body that approves whether you're competent or not to practice medicine. And that's our board exams. And radiation oncologists, which is, again, what I do, we take a board exam is specifically in physics. It's medical physics. Oh, I didn't um, know that. As part of our process. So in your training um, as, a, as a doctor, you really studied physics more in depth than other doctors might have done in different specialties. And you, is, is that going coming a part of your research, like looking at the, these particles and how they interact? Uh, it is. Um, there... My research is more clinically based, but there's certainly a lot of research that's more sort of physics-based. And there are um, uh, medical physicists that are part of every department. These are usually PhD physics professionals that uh, you know tinker with the machines and make sure the machines are operating as they should be uh, and that sort of thing. Oh, that's fascinating. It's like connection between all these different fields of science.
Um, I was just going to ask a question that might be kind of silly, but like, I was just imagining like a sci-fi kind of, I mean, is this kind of technology could potentially kill someone like some kind of x-ray gun or is that totally absurd? That is definitely not absurd. And there are a couple of different ways to sort of look at that. First, I should say that um, our specialty is highly regulated because, you know, we are giving radiation therapy. And in fact, one of the ways that we didn't talk about to give radiation is to use actual radioactive sources. So instead of using a machine that creates the radiation, using a material that emits radiation, like, you know, a lump, a lump of rock or uh, a radioactive uh, element. And that is highly regulated because uh, you can imagine if a radioactive substance like that gets into the wrong hands, uh, we get in a lot of trouble. And so there are all sorts of safety procedures and protocols in place. Let me give you a specific example. As I mentioned, I give radiation for prostate cancer primarily. It's sort of my subspecialty. And one way we do that is sometimes by putting radioactive seeds directly into the prostate, actually inserting the seeds into the prostate seeds? and dropping them off there. Seeds, huh. like uh, <laughs> about the size of a grain of rice. Like a pumpkin seed? Okay. <laughs> like <laughs> kind of like a, yeah, a little smaller, but yep. So, uh, for example, on Monday, I did three cases just uh, two days ago. Um, patient comes in under general anesthesia, meaning they're put to sleep, and uh, we insert, you know, anywhere between 50 to 60 to 70 seeds directly uh, into the prostate and drop them off, and then they emit radiation uh, while they're in there, and they're in there forever. Oh wow! And uh, what do you, what do you mean they're in there forever? Uh, meaning they don't come out. <laughs> we <laughs> put them in the prostate and they're there for good. But because they, they have radioactive decay, meaning they lose some of their radiation over time, we can control how much they ultimately end up getting. Okay. But uh, as one can imagine, you know, dealing with radioactive sources like that is highly regulated, and there are a lot of safety protocols in place to make sure uh, radioactive materials don't get in the wrong hands and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. And of course, you know, there's always toxicity with medical treatment and there's certainly toxicity with radiation therapy, and we have to be very aware of that and minimize the risk for toxicity while maximizing the chance of cure. Hmm. But there um, uh, are many instances in radiation, as in any other branch of medicine, where there have been radiation mistakes, or the radiation has been inappropriately delivered, or there's some you know, malfunction in the software or the machine or some technical component where too much radiation was delivered uh, unbeknownst to the patient and provider. And uh, the New York Times had a pretty compelling series of articles about uh, eight years ago where they sort of did these profiles of um, uh, terrible radiation accidents in the medical setting. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, they're pretty interesting. And a lot of reform has, been, has happened in, this, in the profession to, to try to uh, avoid those. But uh, uh, many type of medicine, there are risks to the therapy. But the um, potential benefit is quite great. And so we cure many patients of their cancer with radiation alone, no other oh. therapy. Yeah, that's uh, really cool to hear about. Yeah. And so we save lives. Um, uh, and in fact, anyone diagnosed with cancer, about uh, probably 50 to 60% of all cancer patients will end up getting radiation at some point during their cancer care. So uh, we give a lot of radiation with cancer patients. It's a great treatment. Yeah, no, it's really cool to hear about. Um, I mean, I guess the basic idea is that radiation direct in the right way kills the cells. So you're trying to kill the cancer cells and not the healthy cells. Is that the? That's right. So that's uh, sort of the therapeutic window, as they say. Is you know the the name of the game is killing the cancer cells without damaging the normal cells of the body. 
the way we could get into as much technical details as we want, but the, basically the, the way that radiation works is by damaging the DNA of a cell and specifically doing something called double strand breaks. You know, DNA is a double strand molecule and radiation works by creating free radicals that ultimately damage that molecule, that, that strand. Can you say that again? You cut out a little bit. It damages the DNA. Yeah, sure. Yeah, radiation works by damaging the DNA of cells, and then when uh, cells try to replicate with damaged DNA, they sort of have catastrophic failures and die. Interesting. So cancer the... cells are deficient in being able to repair their DNA as well as normal cells. So even if we damage the normal cells with radiation, they often have the ability to repair themselves. Whereas cancer cells, which are dividing uncontrollably and making these mm. tumors, when they try to divide, they sort of have these catastrophic failures and die. And that's why radiation uh, can kill cancer cells while not killing normal cells. And in fact, the way that we give radiation is by giving a little bit of radiation every day over many days. So traditionally, a prostate patient getting radiation would get a daily treatment of radiation every day for as long as three months. Oh, wow. And by giving it just a little bit every day, that gives the opportunity for your normal selves to repair themselves. Yeah. So the, the cancer has cells that also have DNA that are also replicating, like you said, uncontrollably. I hadn't thought about DNA in cancer before. That's interesting to think about. In fact, that's also how chemotherapy works too. So that, that is sort of a common way that we are able to treat cancers by taking advantage of those different cellular properties. Yeah. I guess it raises this question, like, what is cancer? Do you want to speak to that for a minute? I know it's a big topic. Yeah. Um, uh, yep. Cancer, well, there's sort of a distinction. I mean, I guess uh, cancer in general is sort of any uncontrolled growth of tissue. Um, but uh, there's a distinction typically made between malignant and benign tumors. Hmm. Uh, a tumor being basically a lump of cells that are growing uncontrollably. Uh, typically malignant tumors are things that have the propensity to be able to travel to other parts of the body. So if I have metastatic prostate cancer, it would be malignant and could travel to save my bones. Um, but a benign tumor technically isn't thought of as being able to travel to other parts of the body, but those still can cause problems. Hmm. You know, if you have a benign tumor, it may not travel to a different part of the body, but it may get big enough to cause problems. Right. It seems like one of those things, like the older you get, the more likely you are to get cancer. It seems like common knowledge seems obvious, but why is that? Like if someone lives to 100, 110, like it's just, is it inevitable that cancer will develop or is, or is it not? Yeah. Great, great point. Great observation. And you're spot on that cancer is unquestionably a disease of, of aging. I mean, young people get cancer too, but predominantly cancer is more common in older people. And in fact, using the example of prostate cancer, if we took a handful of old men that have died and they were all a hundred years hmm. of age and they had no symptoms, but we did an autopsy and we removed their prostate and we cut it up and we looked to see if they had prostate cancer. Most of those men probably would have prostate cancer in their huh. prostate just by, by virtue of making it to an age enough to get that cancer. Um, I think that one way to think about it is that aging and cancer is sort of a trade-off and, uh, uh, one way, you know, aging is basically at its most fundamental essence, you know, our cells getting older. 
mm. and not doing things that they might have been able to do as well before, mm. right? Because our body is just made up of these building blocks of cells. Cancer is a sort of um, infinite ability to replicate and repair itself. You know, that's why cancer cells grow and grow and grow and divide and grow and grow and grow. Mm. So it is a, a bit of a trade-off. You could sort of either age, meaning you have these checks and balances on the cells growing, but as a consequence, you know, you get older and your cells eventually don't work as well. Or you could not age and then you would be sort of opening the possibility of having of, of having cancer. Hmm. If that makes sense. You're there's like a trade off between aging and having cancer? In a sense, you know, if cancer is a cell's ability to propagate indefinitely, but aging is the inability to propagate or heal your cell indefinitely, then they're sort of different ends of the spectrum. That's so interesting to think about. I mean, there's a lot of people talking uh, now about extending human life, like that we could theoretically live much longer than we do. You know, people in Silicon Valley investing in these, trying to invest in medical technologies to extend life and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the fact that cancer is so common is because we are living long enough to get cancer. And so it's, uh, yeah. Interesting. Maybe we can. Yeah, uh, you live long enough. Go ahead. <laughs> You're going to say if you live long enough. If you live long enough, eventually you'll probably get a cancer. Right. Yeah. There's a little bit of delay here, but I guess I was just going to say maybe we could switch gears. I was going to ask you about your, how you decided to become a doctor and what going through medical school, like, cause I got to hear some of the stories from you and they're, they were fascinating that um, medical school is, has this quality Maybe it's later in, in the in the program when you're in residency it has this quality of like being like a hazing ritual where you have to work so many hours out of the week and like there's like a lot of sleep deprivation that a lot of physicians go through. It's just the whole system seems kind of crazy. So I just wanted to hear your what you want to share about that. Yeah, it is crazy. Um, whew, it's hard to even know where to begin. I mean, the road to becoming a physician in the United States is very long, first of all. You know, you will go through all of your primary schooling, kindergarten through 12th grade, and then you go to um, undergraduate, you know, typically four years. And then you go to medical school after that, if you don't take any time off in between undergraduate and medical school, which is typical. Uh, And then after four years of medical school, you go into your post-medical education or your graduate medical education, also known as residency. And that residency often starts off with an intern year where you're sort of a generalist and just learning how to be a doctor practically. Mm. And then you do your residency, which is usually you're sort of starting to subspecialize. And then even beyond residency, we have what's called fellowships where you subspecialize further. And so it's not uncommon that you go through undergraduate four years, medical school, at least four years internship one year, residency, say three years, fellowship, say another three years before you're actually a board certified oh, physician. Right. My math so skills aren't that, that good. So what do we, it's like yeah. 15 years. Or something. <laughs> it, it's a long road and there are, and of course there are exams every step of the way and sometimes multiple exams. So 
uh, you know, before a, a fully fledged physician truly enters the workforce, you know, you're looking at, you know, between the ages of 33 and 35 years. Well, yeah. I mean, it's good that there's a lot of training. It, there is good. There is the trade-offs. It's good that there's a lot of training. I'd say that a lot of the training you get uh, isn't necessarily, um, I don't want to say needed, but not, not necessarily specific to what you end up doing. Right. Uh, so, for example, you know, a lot of my classmates say majored in undergrad in like French or something, and like, and you're probably not going to use that French right. major as a uh, as a physician. So, I sort of think that medical training is a little too long. I think that medical school itself could be shortened by at least a year, and some places they're starting to do that. Um, many countries don't have undergraduate degrees. You could just go from say your high school to medical school. If you already knew you wanted to be a physician, which would also cut out four years, but there's something to be said about getting those life experiences and, uh, and learning lives just along the road. Oh, interesting. I mean, basically what you're saying is the undergraduate doesn't really apply to the medical, to what you're doing as a doctor too much. Not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Many people disagree with me, but that's my personal opinion. (laughs) I think we, I think, I think we probably get more education than we need. Well, how was it when you, I mean, there was some point where you kind of looked down this road and were like, that's what I want to do. I want to become a doctor. What, what was that moment like? What was that decision like? Yeah, everyone has their own, you know, life path. Um, and there's certainly those folks that want to be a doctor at the age of four and they sort of design their life around that. That definitely wasn't me. I uh, went to the University of Virginia for undergraduate where I was an engineer as you know, and uh, I didn't really, wasn't even really considering medical school maybe until my junior year of college. And that was after I'd had some sort of formative clinical experiences and enjoyed the patient care component and was like, oh, maybe I'll be a doctor. Um, at that point, it was kind of late in college. And so I had to, you know, do things like take the MCAT, the medical college admissions test. Hmm. Um, and uh, I ended up doing a master's program at Georgetown because that was sort of was halfway between medical school or maybe just going to grad school. Right. I mean, I guess I think, you know, most doctors, I would like to believe this, like they're motivated because they want to help people. And there's this, <laughs> there's this very human caring. I mean, it's one of the most ancient professions there are. It's a doctor. It's a, someone who's trying to help people heal when you get down to the basics. Definitely. I think that, um, many doctors, um, are motivated by that. And, uh, I think that's how it should be. You know, I definitely think being a physician is kind of a calling in a sense. Like if you're not in it for the right reasons, you're probably not going to be a very happy physician. And there are plenty of unhappy physicians that may have entered this path of, uh, becoming a physician right. uh, for other reasons. Well, and you sent me some interesting yeah. articles before our conversation. And one of them is that the, the median student loans for people becoming doctors is $200,000 in student loans. So not only is this training very long, it's incredibly expensive. And so, it, yeah, I mean, it was talking about physician burnout. So I think, yeah, it's good to have good motivation, but also if you're in a system that's kind of grinding you down, I can understand why someone would feel burned out after 12, 15 years, $200,000 in loans. I mean, that's a tough, tough road for some people. Definitely. And uh, burnout I would call it an epidemic in healthcare. It's been pretty well documented now is real. And, uh, there are many, many different reasons for that. Um, 
I definitely one one of the reasons is the sort of long and grueling duration of training uh, and the hours involved in you know residency and internship and that sort of thing and even uh, being a physician as well as sort of the documentation burden uh, that the medical system administrators on physicians mm. sort of a lot of uh, forces that make physicians lives in their work more challenging so that they can't give the care that they thought you know, they envisioned themselves giving. Can you, can you but, say more about uh, that? The, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, there's people, this is continuing to be studied, but the amount of time that a physician, for example, spends looking at a computer screen versus actually right. interacting with patients, that balance is becoming more and more skewed away from the, from the patient. You know, so there are all these burdens that are placed on physicians that sort of um, prevent them from doing what they want to do for the majority yeah. of the time. Really, you know, be with patients and have that human interaction. I mean, that's right. what you sign up for. Right. I think that's a good point to kind of highlight. And I can speak, you know, like as the experience of someone who's going to see a doctor and you make an appointment and then you show up there and then you usually have to wait, right? Like if it's at 1230, maybe you see the doctor at one and then they're very hurried and rushed often. And yeah, I always kind of wonder like, what is it that are they so busy seeing other patients or is it like what you're talking about? Like they have to go and do all this red tape kind of stuff on the computer Something is t- obviously it's, it's, stressing them and taking a lot of their time. You know? Yeah, it's all of it. It's, uh, uh, you know, the corporatization of healthcare uh, has put a premium on the number of patients that you see and you try to see them as fast as possible. And then you have to do all this sort of documentation to support it. Uh, <laughs> and the time with the patient is what gets sort of squeezed out of that. And mm. that time with the patient is what most doctors signed up for to begin with. And so you can see how the satisfaction of a profession when you're doing something, you're not doing something that you thought you would right. be doing uh, becomes more apparent. But I want to go back quickly to the cost of care. I mean, this isn't just unique to medical education, uh, but graduate education in general. You know, I think we're probably in this sort of graduate education bubble where the cost of graduate education, medical education included, has just exploded. And it's, it's absurd. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, it's an exploding cost of higher education, especially graduate education. And the reasons for it are murky. And um, if I don't know, it seems like a lot of the cost is going to administration, advertising. It's a business. Education is, is yeah. being run as a business. And the same thing with healthcare. And I think part of what you're talking about is that having this business model applied to things like education and healthcare is maybe not the best approach. That's not the underlying motivation. It's not really why people should be wanting to become a doctor. And there needs to be some kind of, um, you know, we're, we live in a capitalist society. There needs to be some kind of money exchange, but it also needs to be balanced with, I just don't think that should be the underlying kind of format that we should organize these things with. Yeah. I agree. I mean, um, you know, just because educational institutions are nonprofit doesn't mean that they have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of money coming in. I mean, walk around a established university or medical campus and you'll see these huge, amazing buildings, construction always going on, always expanding, infrastructure being developed, you know, that comes with, uh, you know, expanding student bodies and tuition and new new administrators and new faculty. I mean, uh, hmm. that month, that, yeah. It's uh, it's exploded. You see that in healthcare too. I mean, go to any medical campus, and they're huge. These huge, fancy, impressive buildings. Like, hmm. you know, they look like hotels, and uh, that's where a lot of that money is ending up. Interesting. I think you're kind of advocating a more human-centered approach 
like balancing this out with like the actual human to human context in human time and yeah i mean that's where the care is delivered that's where the healing takes place is you know your doctor wants to spend an hour with all his patients but uh the reality of the system is that you know he's trying to see a new patient every 15 minutes oh yeah that seems like that seems crazy well to go that To go back to your um, medical school time, like part of that difficulty of that was this, like when you're your first year in residency and you're kind of at the bottom of the totem pole and you're having to, you just have like crazy hours, right? Did you want to speak to that at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have crazy hours sort of a long way in medical school. I mean, a lot of it is sort of self-imposed, but you have a lot of hours studying and you have a lot of exams and it's stressful and competitive. And then in residency, uh, you know, in in medical school, you take these huge exams that sort of determine all, you know, your fate and a lot of weight to put it (laughs) on those exams. And so a lot of your time is spent just cramming for these exams that you may never use again, but you want to do as well as you can. So you can, you know, do the specialty that you want to do or, you know, practice where you want to practice. But anyways, then in residency, um, this has been an ongoing issue. Uh, Traditionally, residents called house because they literally would live in the hospital uh, and that would be their house. <laughs> and that was when, you know, medicine, you know, it's always been the sort of apprenticeship model. Um, but uh, it was more of a lifestyle and, you know, almost like a monk is kind of what I, huh. uh, I, I like your life to that medicine. for a period of time. Yeah. And if you're not truly devoted to that and you have the demands of the profession that require that devotion, then uh, when you have that discrepancy, that's when you, you know, you really get unhappy and uh, that burnout kind of creeps in. Mm. Um, Imagine yeah, someone who, the, had a, who had a family or something at that time. That'd be very tough. Well, that's, and that's the thing is, you know, <laughs> you reach the end of your medical training and you've spent so much of your life, you know, trying to be a master of your craft. And then you're 33 or you're 35 and you want to, have your family and uh it's can be hard to do that right not to mention that a lot of the people that you meet along the way uh you know your social network or whatever are also healthcare professionals just by nature of your network you formed and so maybe you end mm-hmm. up marrying another doctor which is becoming more and more common and then you have both individuals in the relationship being, you know, healthcare professionals. And I can speak from personal experience because my wife is a physician. <laughs> I was going to say, that's your, your situation. <laughs> yeah. And so you really have to, uh, you have to, to juggle that. And that's becoming more and more common. And um, yeah, we see that. But anyways, you know, going back I think, to the, I think, well, I think the that's, hours. I think that's interesting because our society is becoming more and more I would say specialized and I don't know what the word compartmentalized, like, so like different groups of people kind of flock together, these different little groups. And maybe this is another example of that. But if you're an IT guy, you'll hang around all these computer people all the time and that'll be your social network. Or if you're a, maybe if you're a lawyer, you hang out with a bunch of other lawyers. I think in the past it used to be, society used to be like people used to mix a little bit more. I'm not sure. I I think there's a lot of truth to that and uh, can give you sort of a specific example that demonstrates the consequences of that. So a lot of the academic work that I do is in regards to the physician workforce. Mm -hmm. Radiation oncology, my specialty is, you know, highly specialized and uh, you can't just be a radiation oncologist anywhere. You have to be at a place that can have the infrastructure for these big expensive machines, for example. Mm. And so, 
Uh, an issue that we have in this country is, for example, rural access to health care. You know, mm-hmm. how is that patient that's living on a farm in Kansas going to get their sophisticated cancer care that they need? Um, and it's very, it can be very hard to get radiation oncologists or any, you know, highly specialized person to practice in that area um, because the infrastructure might not be there that they're used to or, or need that support of. But to take that a step further, imagine then if your spouse is also a highly specialized, uh, Mm. you know, professional physician or lawyer or whatever, then it's even harder to get you to go into that rural area. And so, uh, uh, you know, there's definitely a a real issue in our country and it's becoming increasingly so sort of uh, this rural access to healthcare. And I think that this, you know, when, when you live in this medical system and you become super specialized and you have a spouse who also is a doctor and also specialized in you know, you're not both going to be able to find jobs in rural America. And so you're going to end up in some city that can support you both. Right. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. Um, but going back to the, the hours thing, you know, this has been an ongoing issue in healthcare now for probably, I don't know, 15 years or so. And it got so bad that they basically started restricting the number of hours that you could work as a resident. And uh, uh, there's a whole story there, too. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. I mean, so the, these physicians or the people doing their residency would be on call for like, what, 18 hours and they would sleep and then they would wake up and still be in the hospital. And I don't know, can you just like give a little sketch of what that looks like? Because yeah. it's, it's, kind, well, of outra- it's mean, kind of outrageous that someone that sleep deprived would be your doctor that you'd have to see. Yeah. Yeah. It, it used to be, there. yeah, it's tough. It's a trade-off because on the one hand you want them you want your trainees to be in the thick of it and, you know, getting as much experience as they can practicing medicine so that when they graduate, they're ready to go. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't want uh, someone who hasn't slept in 36 hours, you know, removing your gallbladder. <laughs> <laughs> no, you <laughs> don't want to fall asleep. Unless <laughs> they fall asleep on their scalpel. Is 36 uh, hours an exaggeration or is that a real thing? It, that's, it, that, that, that definitely happens. Yeah. I think I think it's less so now because the regulations have tightened and stuff. But I mean, I used to go in as an intern into the in I, I had a lot of rotations in the medical intensive care unit or the ICU, and I would get there, you know, around five or six p.m. and I would have the night shift, and then I would spend all night, you know, admitting new patients. And there were times where I would not go home until you know one p.m. the next day. Wow. Uh, and yeah. you know, you can imagine going in at 5 PM, staying up all night, taking care of incredibly sick patients, super stressful. You're not experienced. You're a new person trying to manage the system and make sure these patients that you, you know, don't die on you, get them to the, to the break of day where the rest of the team comes in. And then, uh, you finally get, you know, finish your work and sort of limp home at, at 1 PM. It's uh, exhausting. Oh, man. Yeah. That sounds incredibly exhausting. But it used to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, medical education has changed a lot over the years, but uh, uh, some things have not changed. And the number of hours uh, needed to be a medical professional have not changed that much, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, you just said something interesting, too. You try to make sure your patients don't die on you. You know, it's kind of a joke, but that must be a really difficult part of working in healthcare. I mean, people do die in hospitals and that is something that you, you know, of all the professions that's, you're kind of confronted with death more, I would think. 
Yeah. I mean, when I was a new medical school graduate and as an intern, I personally pronounced the death of many patients. Oh, wow. What, so what you is go that? In, you do what is a, that like? You literally, you know, you go in, you literally do an exam to, uh, and listen to the heart or the, the breathing and their their bed and then you fill out a form and you inform the family and you decide whether they need to go for an autopsy or not or that sort of thing um and you know you're having some of these tough conversations uh after being sleep deprived and uh you know emotionally it's very very straining you know sleep sleep is so important not only for our physical health but our mental health and actually something i've learned is the most surefire way to have someone go clinically insane is to deprive them of sleep for three or more days. That's, that's like, yeah. if you, if you don't sleep for long enough, it's almost automatic. And so a lot of people have had psychotic breaks. It's connected with like not being able to sleep, insomnia, sleep issues, or taking drugs that stop you from sleeping or whatever it is. And so I just, I know yeah. how important sleep is from, from my work as a therapist. And so I just, I really don't like thinking about these physicians being sleep deprived. Let me give you a specific example. <laughs> so my wife is an emergency medicine physician. We also have uh, two toddlers at home and her hours are all over the place. You know, I have the benefit of being somewhat routine and regular with my hours because I'm outpatient and, you know, I have clinic and we're open, you know, from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever. But uh, in the emergency department, which is open 24 hours, they are, you know, it has to be staffed throughout the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Hmm. And so it's shift work, meaning that she has to be in the emergency department from a certain time to a certain time. And then her shift is done and she passes off to the next provider. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason to her shift. So she could, you know, work in the day or in the morning one day. And then the next day she would work at night and that sort of thing. So it's not regular. And uh, no, it's not, it's not necessarily regular at all. And so I'm just, I'm just opening up my calendar here on my phone and I'm going to tell you what her starting on Friday, last Friday, she went in at 6 PM Friday night and she got her shift. So she she goes in, her shift starts at 6 PM, you know, so she leaves the house. Emergency room medicine. Yeah. Yep. So she leaves the house at maybe 5.30 PM and then she goes till 3 AM but at 3 a.m., even though her shift is done, she still has all of her paperwork and documentation to do. Maybe she gets home at 4 a.m. Hmm. Then on Saturday, she goes back again, 6 p.m. shift, gets off again Sunday morning at 3 a.m. Then on Sunday, she goes back at 6 p.m., gets off on Monday morning at 3 a.m. Then she goes back on Monday night at 11 p.m. and gets off on Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. So that is literally what she did last weekend. A lot of nights. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. But then this week, she goes in at, at 9 a.m. and gets off at 6 p.m. So it's really all over the place. And it can be several days in a row. And uh, it, takes, it takes my wife, you know, days to recover after a run of night shifts like that. I oh, mean, well. she can't. It's not, like, it's not like, you know, she comes off her night shift and then the next day or the following day, you know, life is back to normal and she's on a regular schedule. Really? Like she's her, she feels terrible and is exhausted and it takes, you know, a good couple of days to sort of wash out that, uh, schedule disaster that she just went through before <laughs> she's like a normal person again. Right. Well, it's your sleep rhythms and your cycles and they can get disrupted and 
it takes your body a while to adjust, but that's all. I have a lot of respect for people yeah. working in the emergency room. I mean, that's a super intense place. And, and we really- there's actually a good amount of data now that shows, you know, the health consequences of, you know, night shifts and things like that, cardiovascular or, you know, pregnancies and, or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we kind of take it for granted, but people are there in the hospital working all night. It's, it's amazing. It's a sacrifice. It's a service. It's a real service. Yeah. 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 Hospital's well, just, always open. <laughs> just to go back for a minute to, you, you shared that you had pronounced many patients dead and you did a kind of test. Was there ever any kind of unusual circumstances or anything you noticed around the death process? Like, have you seen someone go through that from when they're alive and then they go through a process and then they're dead at some point. Like it's not, it's not like a light on light off kind of thing. There's a, a process, right. That kind of happens. Mm-hmm. Yep, very much so. And, uh, in cancer care, you know, we see that a lot, uh, end of life care and that sort of things. Patients often die from cancer. Um, but, uh, it is a process and everyone handles death differently, including the patient and their family mm-hmm. members. Mm. Um, and there's a wide spectrum uh, from denial to acceptance and everything in between. Right. Yeah, I can imagine some people have that acceptance and some people want to fight it to the end. And It's interesting. I mean, in Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan culture, there's this, they outline these stages of the dying process and it's like considered very important that you, you know, practice things like compassion and increase your awareness at that moment that they're because they believe so strongly in rebirth that that will like lead to your next life in a positive way. If you die in a positive way And here, obviously mm-hmm. we have very different culture and understandings, but it still is like a sacred time. I mean, it's a time of transition, obviously and a time of unknown and of mystery and of something that we all have to go through. Definitely. Um, yep. And, uh, it can be very hard to accept that for a lot of people and their family members and uh, not everyone uh, is at peace with that. Right. Well, I guess since I have you, I mean, is there, have you heard of that movie? I forget what it's called. It's something like seven ounces. And it's this idea that when you die, your body weight shifts like some measurable amount and that's supposed to be your soul. Is that just a totally uh, not a true thing? Or have you heard anything about that? <laughs> I, I'm not familiar with that. I've never heard of it but that's not to say it's not true. I think it might be like an urban legend or something, but it's, there's this belief that when you die, there's some amount of your, your body weight shifts this certain amount. And mm-hmm. there was a, there was a movie that was made called that. <laughs> anyway. Really? I have not seen that. Oh, you don't know that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for, for sharing all this. I guess, I mean, the other topic that we were going to touch on, I know we've been talking for a while now is just the overall state of healthcare. Any it just seems like such a mess. It's in the, it's in politics a lot. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to understand as like a regular person, what is going on. It's like this huge system that you have to kind of navigate. And it seems like it's on the individual to kind of advocate for themselves and figure it out. And um, I don't even know how to ask this question. I'm just, <laughs> we're constantly debating healthcare nationally and also on a statewide level. And like, how can we, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts or solutions or? answers towards that? um, uh, Yeah, I mean, our healthcare on national level is a mess. Uh, There are things that we do very well. There are things that we don't do well. But I think everyone agrees that it costs a lot of money. Um, 
Mm. People can disagree on how much money is appropriate, but I think everyone agrees that it's a lot of money. Um, and there's certainly many efforts, and this is a major push in policy in general, is to try to constrain the growing costs of healthcare. Uh, right. and there are many the costs are huge. Yeah, and for, yeah. for people that don't have so much money, it's a real it's a real burden. I mean, it could be a burden for anyone. I mean, you're talking about cancer treatments yeah. that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, no question. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a tough, sticky situation, and there's no clearly right answer. But uh, eventually, it's going to fix itself because at the current pace it's going, it's uh, not sustainable. <laughs> Right. It can't keep going this direction. Well, when you see someone like Bernie Sanders talking and giving speeches about it, are you thinking, I don't mean to put you on the spot too much, but does that sound like, is that making sense to you as a doctor or are you thinking that's wishful thinking? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there are uh, many different solutions to a problem. There's not, you know, one solution that is the only acceptable option. I think it must agree that something needs to be done. And I don't care so much about what form that takes as long as it is done. Um, and different politicians or political parties have different approaches to that. Um, I think we are gotten ourselves into a little bit of this mess where we sort of take one step forward and two steps back. And part of that is with shifting administrations and things like that. Right. Uh, a good example is, you know, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, uh, which was this huge initiative to try to at least begin the conversation of fixing our healthcare. Um, and then a lot of that has been stripped away. Uh, and so it's hard to sort of make progress one way or the other, whichever direction you want to take when, uh, it's a sort of constant tug of war. Right. Well, that totally makes sense to me. Um, Obamacare was this big thing and the Republicans were so against that. Now they've kind of succeeded in dismantling or destroying a lot of it. Right. But what is replacing it? Uh, good question. <laughs> uh, and you know, the, uh, you know, there's the ideal and then there's the practical and, uh, politics and policy, uh, as one of my mentors told me, and is one of my favorite ways to look at it is policy is not practical. So, uh, mm. what the ideal is, is often not what actually happens. So you, you know, uh, that's why a lot of it just doesn't make any sense from sort of a practical standpoint. Right, but there are a lot of competing interests that we have to try to satisfy, and uh, yeah, yeah, such a complex thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I appreciate like our conversation. We've kind of gone over a lot of different things, you know, from your education to talking about the dying process and the and the politics, but they all kind of tie together for me. I mean, I think health is something that affects everyone. There's a lot of facets to it, and we've kind of touched on like this human aspect of it. Like it's just very human and we talk about these big policies and insurance companies, they can seem kind of inhuman. Like they're these giant behemoth organizations that who knows how they're operating or what's going on with them. I mean, we haven't even touched on like the pharmaceutical industry, for example, which is making tremendous amounts of money off medication, a lot of which is helping people. But with the opioid crisis, we see pharmaceutical companies pushing medication that led to a giant addiction crisis. So there's clear, like, it's just, to me, it's so clear that there's, um, a tremendous amount of ethical issues when we bring the profit motive into medicine. Yeah. Um, yes, definitely. I think, uh, I think you summed it up well by saying that the thing that connects all this is obviously the human element and that's, you know, what it's all about. Um, 
I think that uh, my personal opinion is that, you know, a, a human has the right to certain things. And I think uh, healthcare is one of those things that as a society, we have a duty to provide for the individuals that make up that society. I think education is another one, hmm. you know, these sort of basic components of a functioning society and uh, how you achieve those is uh, the controversial part, but we can all agree that, you know, what is Right. Yeah. I think everyone would agree that healthcare and education are these kind of fundamental rights that we, we have to some degree or another. I mean, the conversation gets tricky when we start talking about immigration, for example, and things like that. How much do we want the state, the government to, to be doing these things? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're complicated topics. So I think I should come back and do this again and we can, we can tackle some <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah. I could go into more depth. We didn't get into the yeah. PBMs and all that stuff, but maybe another time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plenty to talk about. Well, I appreciate you being on if here. I'm, and... If I'm lucky, I'll be a recurring guest. Yeah, that'd be great. We'll figure out our technical yeah. difficulties <laughs> better next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you have found this podcast valuable, there are many ways in which you can support it. You can share it with friends and on your social media. You can leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app. And you can visit our Patreon page patreon.com backslash a state of mind for show notes and more information unique to each episode visit a state of and to learn more about my work as a therapist meditation teacher and coach visit julianocean.us and please don't hesitate to send me a message or email and let me know what you think and contribute to our conversation thank you so much for your support it is listeners like you that make all this so very much worthwhile